0: So I think I think what what I was hoping Justin to have a, a conversation about as we talked about earlier was just sort of the updated science what you've seen in my site um, the the second three year data that you can talk about yeah um, and then you know some of the nuances of of what we're seeing in terms of longevity based on the evidence yeah. of my site and how powerful it is
1: yeah totally so you know at the start of year four after the first three year randomized controlled trial. You had the control group, which was older now. I mean, they both were older. (laughs) But the control group had more myopia and, of course, then longer eyeballs, right? And so the question was, would they have a response? Would they also get treatment efficacy for years four, five, and six? And thankfully, the answer was yes. (laughs) The whole second phase was about comparing the original treatment group uh, to those that started treatment three years later, and they were essentially parallel. Um.
0: So, if we can, if we can, um, kind of go back a little further, because you yeah. did exactly what I asked you to do, is to, <laughs> to jump in at the updated version. But let's assume that I know nothing about the first three-year version. Yes. Yeah. Okay? Hello and welcome to the World Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Justin Kwan about the nuances of the MySite study, both the three-year data and six-year data, and then what we're gonna uh, expect in the next uh, few months on the seven-year data. So it was a lot of fun. I always have fun talking to Dr. Kwan and I always learn a whole bunch. So please enjoy our conversation. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends and support those who support us. Yeah. So in the first three year version, the summary kind of summary points was we reduce axial elongation by what percent and yep. myopia by what percent yep and then you had a after that three-year group you looked let the control group do something else so kind of yeah. take me from that sure. beginning and then and then move on
1: sure yeah so um the my site study four clinical sites singapore uk portugal and canada um, the control group progressed just like kids in the ACHIEVE study, which is we always focus on that because people will say, well, these international kids aren't going to be like the U.S. kids, but they grew exactly the same, 0.62 millimeters in three years.
0: So you can match what was happening in all these other countries to a study that
1: was happening in the the United States. Correct, correct. And so these kids were 8 to 12 years old when they started. Half were randomized to my site, half to ProClear one day. None of these kids had ever worn contact lenses. Of course, they couldn't have passed myopia treatment. Um, and the first three years ended with a 59% average efficacy for cycloplegic spherical equivalent. And 59% usually doesn't mean much, right? It's right. like, what? So I think it's helpful to think of a minus two 10-year-old, which was the average. My site ended up 250, proclin ended up 325. So that three-quarter diopter difference? Over three years. Over three years, yes, is what that 59% amounted to. And some people might say three-quarter diopters is not a heck of a lot, but remember, every diopter matters. Right. And that is, compares very well to other studies. And I try to think back to like a systemic disease like hypertension. And of course, lisinopril as an ACE inhibitor like reduces blood pressure by 20%. Right. So 59% is like pretty darn good. Yeah. Yeah, pretty right. fantastic there.
0: And, and yeah. so then the the second part of that where we're kind of getting more updated data for this next 3 years. The yeah. first one is the first component is we're thinking we can now instead of say, saying we can spare a diopter. Yeah. We're now closer to 2 diopters yeah. in in evidence. Yeah. And then there was sort of this the, the patients, as you were saying before, who were in the control group were now allowed to be in the treatment,
1: treatment group. yes. Yeah. So let's
0: talk about those two things.
1: Yeah. So we'll start with the second first is that when the control group uh, got refit from ProClear to my site, uh, they also achieved a very nice um, slowing of their progression. And we typically try not to go, oh, the prior year's progression to now the current year's progression um, because, well, we lost our control group, which is, was the ethical thing to do. Uh, but it was comparing to the kids that were in my site originally, mm-hmm. and it was extremely parallel. It was like you know, 0.16 diopters year four, then 0.14 diopters year five, and actually almost zero diopters for year six. Hmm. So they were naturally slowing down when they right. got older. Right. Uh, and so maybe my site wasn't really necessary in that year. Uh, But it's always nice to have no progression. (laughs) And this is very well-controlled, cycloplegic, of course. um, Do
0: we have any other studies that Mm -hmm. have looked at at progression over six years? Just natural progression over six years, that period of time?
1: Yeah, those prospective longitudinal. I think what's typically referenced is the Donovan paper, where they looked, I think, from seven to 12-year-olds on Europeans and Asians in single-vision glasses um, so, yeah, no treatment there. And um, actually, yeah, the untreated progression was a little more rapid than our my site control group, but it follows very well. And we always say the younger they are, the faster they progress. It's, it's a very easy to remember thing. And I think it does drive the urgency for doctors to not just be like, oh, I'll see the seven year old in, in a year.
0: Well, yeah. I, I present a case on that. Actually, um, I presented a case uh, yesterday at the Global Contact Lens Symposium. Mm that uh was that you know mm. I was, It was a 13-year-old patient. It was the first time I saw her, but when you look at her prior spectacle RX, yeah. uh she had progressed a doctor and a, a quarter in one eye and mm. a doctor and a half in the other Ooh. in one year. Yeah. Um based on the first time I saw her. Yeah. And uh and you start to do some of the analysis is like the analysis mm-hmm. that and anal- out yeah <laughs> it sounds like I'm not saying it right. The analysis of if we start treatment now, mm-hmm. we can spare. So it was like over three years we could spare about three three fourths of adopter. Yeah. Yeah. But had we gotten to her just one year prior, mm. it would have been an additional, in theory, an additional three fourths of doctor,
1: right? Yeah. yeah. So now you're yeah. talking
0: real, yeah. real numbers.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of like you have the ability to like apply the brakes and right. then as the car is slowing down, they're they're naturally slowing down, too. So it's almost like you're coming to that full stop.
0: Yeah. yeah. But, it, but it's just always challenging because I think there's this reaction for us to be like, well, you know, we'll have a serious conversation, but not quite as serious mm-hmm. with a parent mm-hmm. who's kind of like, well, they've only progressed a, a quarter doctor, maybe a half doctor. So you probably should really think about this. There's this yeah. natural inclination yeah. for us to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, but but then you didn't you didn't start it because they only progressed a quarter diopter this year. Yeah. But now it's a doctor. yeah.
1: Right? And you can't, you can't get that can't time save back. It. You
0: can't get it back. Yeah.
1: As another doctor said, you can't undo what's been done. And uh, yeah, now you're staring at whatever minus four or yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that reminds me that while average age of stabilization is age sixteen you're going to treat a 16-year-old minus four different than a 16-year-old minus one. Right. Yeah. So I think that all plays in. And as you said, you got to kind of read the parent, but be confident with your prescribing, right? Yeah. And, and just take the whole clinical picture uh, into account. Yeah.
0: I want to revisit why this matters again, because yeah. I've seen a lot of, um, you know, scuttle uh, in in social media about, you know, myopia controls not, or myopia management is just, it's not really, it's not that big of a deal. We don't really have to focus on it and it's overblown. What would you say to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if they've taken a picture or a look at the retina, it's clearly anatomical changes and, and we know how those stories tend to end. Not everybody that's minus 10 gets myopic maculopathy, but there are some minus ones that get myopic maculopathy. So I think if we do our part, I mean, there's countless analogies, right? Um, smoking cessation, right? Not everybody that smokes gets lung cancer, mm-hmm. but do you want to reduce the risk? Sure, right? Mm-hmm. Do you need to reduce the risk harder for somebody that's COPD? Absolutely, mm-hmm. right? And, and and there's just so much. Like in contact lens world, we talk about like microbial keratitis and, oh, you don't need to wear your seatbelt, right. but you should. <laughs> right. and, and I think those things are... Uh, I don't understand the disconnect of why we don't look at this as a disease. And you can only blame the centuries of thicker glasses and updating prescriptions. But there was a turning point that we see ourselves as medical you know, providers. And, and this falls into the definition of disease. And this is children, for goodness sake. Yeah. Like you um, can't. We've been on some parent focus groups, Chris. And it's like even the parents are said, we can't not live with ourselves, but we can't be in a place where we regret or we, what if we uh, mm. didn't, or, uh, you know, they they do have that in their mind, and I think it's important to hear out these parents that when they were shown, not even like a scary disease retina, they were just shown that the schematic of a normal eye and a longer eye, and they're like, I don't want that longer yeah, eye, right. and sometimes that's all it takes, right. um, and if a doctor can't even rationalize that, and a parent that's a layperson can be like, Mm-mm, you know, yeah. I feel like, wow, did we really let the, the public get more educated than the doctor? <laughs> I wonder if we've been browbeat yeah.
0: to some degree as a profession to, to think of... Refractive refractive conditions is just not that significant. Like it's sort of this like minor because yeah. because of who pays for a <laughs> refractive getting... condition versus yeah. who pays for another medical condition. Yeah, that in our minds we've just allowed the payers to browbeat us into thinking, <laughs> well, refractive conditions, those aren't as serious. That goes to the vision plan.
1: Yeah, right? I think there's an element of that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I wonder how much of it exists. Yeah.
0: Because because then when you start thinking about, you know, even even I, when I'm presenting on it and I talk about um, this idea that when you're seeing a scleral crescent mm-hmm. in a myopic patient, mm. and even in a mildly, mild, you know, if I'm noting a, a patient that has uh, a temporal crescent, and mm-hmm. uh, it's in a, in a quarter diopter myope.
1: Yeah. Like, hmm.
0: It's it's intuitive for me to think that's myopic stretch, yeah. right? Yeah. But I would deny it for years. I, I wouldn't even not deny it, but I just wouldn't actively like put two and two together. I yeah. was always thinking, oh, it's not really something I'm it's thinking variation of,
1: of normal, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. No big deal. Uh-huh.
0: But like, in fact, that is a retinal finding associated with axial elongation, mm-hmm. which is in fact a medical condition, mm-hmm. right?
1: And if you could, like, miniaturize yourself and go into the RNFL, like, what's happening yeah, there? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Yeah. So, so like, I, you really have to consciously think about it. And when I present that information, I'll present pictures of, of different amounts of myopia. Yeah. And different amounts of even just small variations yeah. of axial elongation that you're seeing in the eye. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is a reason to mm-hmm. monitor that patient, and I would argue treat that patient, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Then um, we wouldn't look at it any different if we could slow, you know, slow the progression of glaucoma, slow yeah. the progression of macular yeah. degeneration. Yeah, we shouldn't look at it any different. But for some reason, I al- always kind of yeah. have this internal like, should I tell people to be using this this medical code when they see this? I'm like, I think or, I should, yeah. but what are people going to think of me if I do that? <laughs> and, you know, it's just. It's or maybe weird. it's
1: also because we've begun to teach myopia management in optometry curriculum mm-hmm. in, in the schools, but it doesn't live in the disease course, right? Yeah, it's refractive. I think maybe that's a part of it, too. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Well, and it, it, makes, it starts to make you wonder you know, how many patients do you see so i have to be honest I, I don't see a ton of patients who have myopic what i would think mm-hmm. of as myopic maculopathy right
1: yeah. i could probably count them on one hand yeah. in one year but they mm-hmm.
0: exist largely in the retina practice
1: exactly yeah. yeah we lose sight of where they end up yeah and I, whenever i'm speaking from the stage too it, it's like um i stumbled upon a facebook support group <laughs> yeah. of patients living with myopic maculopathy and if you see post after post of wow, where are these patients living? Who's their doctor, you know? And wow. and they're really 51 years old as a minus 450 getting anti-VEGF. I'm like, wow, so they do exist, right? And the
0: anti-VEGF yeah. doesn't work like it works in Yeah, MDF, it works right? differently, right? Yeah.
1: although it's more responsive. I've talked to some it's, retinal it works specialists. Better. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, that that's actually pretty. That's good news. I suppose it is good in a way. But <laughs> but, but you you're always going to go down in, a fee, in defeat once you're an anti vegf I think that's the other yeah. the side of it. Is that you know at it's, some point you're gonna you're gonna have scarring and yes, likely, exactly. and it's going to impact yeah. vision yeah. at some yeah. level.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The yeah. um, but but I guess I, I brought that up because it starts. It does make me wonder. Like you know, I get some of these patients that have you know they might have been let's say a two doctor myope mm-hmm. or a one doctor myope, and you know they've got. Um, or, or you start looking at their maculas and, and mm-hmm. they, their macular function is good, mm-hmm. but they've got these kind of disruptions in their macula. Maybe they've got a myopic crescent mm-hmm, and you're kind of thinking, mm-hmm. well, is this early macular degeneration because I've never seen them before? Mm-hmm. Or is this a yeah. uh, product of their ma- you know, yeah. maculopathy? Yeah, yeah. So it just makes me wonder if I, if we're not you know some of those early cases what we would consider AMD isn't myopic maculopathy and it's just such a, a challenging line unless you are seeing that patient over years yeah. to know yeah what what it was actually well, from. in some cases
1: it could be both yeah 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 is
0: there yeah. what's what is the association I don't know this answer but. What's the association between patients who have myopic maculopathy? Are they more or less susceptible to AMD, or does it matter? No. Con-
1: I haven't read anything that says that it makes them more susceptible. Um, I guess you could say, is there any oxidative stress when the tissue and the choroid is not supporting? Because we know in myopia, the choroid is thinner, mm-hmm. it's different, mm-hmm. and, and so maybe there's something there. Um, from both a structural and, and physiological standpoint, but yeah, I'm not too sure of the odds ratios or, yeah. you know, how yeah. that impacts one to the other. You know, yeah. You know.
0: Do you, do you think about the choroid much? Like, you know, I know there's more starting to out about, yeah, <laughs> choroidal thickening. And, yeah. Is that something that's been measured in the my site studies?
1: I want to say it, I don't think it was, but I know that in ongoing research, like going back maybe a year, like mm. they are looking at that very intently and, Usually when I give talks, I also talk about, um, you know, what things can impact the choroid in a very short term, yeah. like, upon 30 minutes, 60 minutes right, type of time right. frame. And, and surprisingly, VR headsets, virtual reality, they thicken the choroid. Hmm. Uh, so does dark mode on your phone or your device. It if you thickens
0: have, the choroid. Yes.
1: If you have white font on a black background, uh-huh. it actually thickens the choroid, which is a good thing. Right. Is it clinically significant where you're, like, bolstering this dynamic relationship? Um, Who knows? But it can't hurt. I mean, whenever you can thicken the choroid in myopia, that's a move in the positive direction. And the
0: theory behind that is that Mm -hmm. the choroid is then is then resisting additional axial elongation. Is resisting it, or is it is it artificially hardening? Like, how does that relate to?
1: Because it's vasculature. I'm not sure how it impacts like scleral rigidity, but I just know it's 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 a it's a biomarker at the end of the day. The thickness. Um, but I think it relates to dopamine because we know that dopamine signals the outer retina and the choroid to change. And dopamine somehow is a stop signal for axial elongation. Right. So in that cascade somewhere, the choroid is important. It, it's, it's hard to figure out. Does but nitric oxide
0: you know, come into that at all as well as do dopamine? I can't yeah. remember if dopamine plays a role in <laughs> Where that could thicken the choroid as well, right, by dilating blood the vessels. Fact,
1: yeah. Not sure on that, Chris. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I, just, I
0: mean, it's just, again, the, the stuff, I think, you know, the, the hard part is, is that there's there's so much stuff that we know, and, and it feels like the more, the, the more time goes on, the faster we know stuff, right? Yeah. 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 But then also... Yeah. Um, again, I think the detractors would say what I think they're missing is like, well, we don't know all this stuff. Like there's mm-hmm. so many, we don't know how atropine works. We don't know how, yeah. Yeah. we don't mm-hmm. know exactly mm-hmm. how, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how um, uh, yeah. or the curatology or peripheral defocus yeah. yeah. or my site. Yeah. how the, per, the change in that defocus peripherally works on my site Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, we, yeah. we have a pretty strong hypotheses that have been around for a long time. Yeah. They seem to, to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that, I think, in a lot of cases is deterring people. But I think there's other, like, we don't know exactly how uh, many medications we use yeah. work. We have good hypotheses. Yeah. We don't yeah, know yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, how do those neoglaucoma drops, um, you know, beyond the trabecular mesh work, how do they fully, you know, get to that extra level of uh, moving past episcleral venous pressure? That's yeah. not fully understood, right? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So it's... Hmm. Um,
0: hmm. I think the the other... Point if you can touch on is okay. Well, in the future, probably the last point that I'll have you touch on today is in the future the the data that that you would think would be important to to evaluate with any new technology that we're gonna that was gonna come through. Yeah. What would what would you say? All right. Well, now you've got six years of data. We're gonna have another seven years to see Correct. what happens when we or another one year when, yeah. when we see what happens when it stops. Okay. So that'll tell us kind of help guide us with my site specifically on what. Um, What we should do when we're stopping patients, Mm -hmm. maybe, Mm -hmm. Um, or at least inform some decisions. But then outside of that, okay, so what's the next step if if there were like a spectacle lens available Mm. or an orthokeratology lens that were available, like what sort of things would you look for to say, okay, this is what would help me know, um, not just FDA approval, but outside of FDA approval, if this is going to be an option that's going to be useful to my patients?
1: Yeah, I think. Just in
0: looking at the evidence in total.
1: Sure. I think it still comes back to axial length and um, in the current past studies, understanding what are the characteristics of kids that did not respond as favorably to the treatment, whatever the treatment is. And some would define that as continued progression of a half diopter per year while under treatment. Uh, but really understand the axial length growth of course, which is highly affected by age and ethnicity, um, but it's coming to that place where we may, people always say we may not need a control group anymore just because all these data points are very tight in, in how kids grow uh, in their axial length uh, from one age to the next and older and so on. So I think any future studies are going to continue to be three-year minimum. Um, they're going to have a rescue treatment just like we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and. They're really going to try to understand, you know, what happens when you stop, <laughs> and then potentially maybe there's going to be a small cohort that might need to restart mm-hmm. uh, treatment. Uh, that's not going to be very many of our patients in practice, um, but uh, I think it's important to understand like the stabilization aspect. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, I, said, I told you I was going to be the last question, but I, <laughs> yeah. I was, the, spawned another one. What um, so? Is there a sense that you have about the non-responders? Yeah, yeah. Is there something common about them? or Because I think what's really going to be valuable in the future is to have, if there's a way that we can have really great predictive models, oh, yeah, right? I think yeah. even for doctors. To Hugely know, so. You yeah. know, you get a patient that's a minus one at 10 years old, and they're yeah. going to stay a minus one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what could we know about that patient versus the patient that's a minus one at 10 years old is going to be a minus eight? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like. Yeah. Being able to make that kind of determination, I think is going to be hugely helpful.
1: Yeah. I mean, our field is starting to move in that genetic direction. And as we learn more about the genome and epigenetics, I think there will be some elements of that fast progressor and mm. relating to the parents and whatnot. Um, but yeah, to understand the non-responders and those that respond super well, <laughs> like you said, um, you don't Because there's
0: not yeah. a lot of information right now that yeah. you can clearly say, this group didn't respond because of this, and this group responded because of that. Yeah. You don't really know why. We the don't know. I,
1: I think the non-responders have some elements where, with the site you're inducing some higher order aberrations into the system. But for the kids that did not respond, I think they continue to get a low level of higher order aberrations, just in their inherent. HOAs combined with the mysite HOAs, mm. it probably canceled out to zero, and we know the more aberrations, the mm. slower the progression. So I think they probably were at a near zero HOA, and so they probably continued progressing to some degree, coupled with, of course, the environment, uh, environmental, you know, bright light exposure and all that. Yeah, uh, probably plays in. That's so. interesting. So it's my so hypothesis. No, no, it's, it's, it's yeah. as valid as yeah. any. Yeah. I, I mean,
0: I it's just interesting because I think the more that's in addition to the things that you said in terms of looking at studies i think one of the things that studies that we're going to have to turn to in studies that that will be exponentially valuable mm-hmm. is to be able to say okay these patients are faster responders mm-hmm. or these patients are faster progressors these patients are slower progressors and these patients are are likely to be unresponsive to this mm. treatment because mm-hmm. we're going to I mean, the reality is we're going to have we already do multiple treatment options yeah. that are fda approved yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. and and so uh so it's going to be really great at some it's point. personalized medicine exactly. is what we're after yeah exactly yeah and that's going to be kind of um at some point but but i think <laughs> it's probably fallacious for us to wait for that right right clearly the evidence tells us we shouldn't be waiting for that at this point but it'll be great when we can do it yeah Yeah. well justin kwan thanks so much for being on again it's always helpful to pick your brain
1: thanks chris you're welcome (laughs)